0: Exodus 32, Haggai chapter 1, okay? And uh, we're going to be utilizing both of these separate places in Scripture in order to understand one simple truth. And the truth that we're going to understand this morning is vital for all believers, but I believe it's also vital for the present world's spiritual victories, and it is the truth concerning revival. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him up, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now hold your place in Exodus 32. Flip over to Haggai 1 and look with me, if you will, at verses 7 7 and 8 will be fine. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountain and bring wood And build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Father, I ask you to please help this morning with this message, Lord. Father, you know that my heart had another place I wanted to be, but it seemed as though this is where you brought us this morning. Lord, I pray there'd be no confusion in this church whatsoever, no confusion about the text, no confusion about the passages. I pray, Lord, that you alone would give us perfect understanding about this truth this morning. I ask that the Holy Spirit would have liberty here and that your word would have free course. If there's any sin at all, Lord, right now, by your grace, would you please forgive and forget that for this moment, Lord, that you would meet with us and help us to better know you in a deeper and more spiritual way, Lord, to understand the truth this morning and to get a hold of how vital and important this revival truth is for our lives, for the health of our lives, for the health of this church, and for the health of this world. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Exodus 32, Moses finds himself in the presence of God upon Mount Sinai, receiving the precious Word of the Almighty. I I personally couldn't even imagine such an event to be in the presence of God, receiving the Word of God directly from him. You know, often all we know is come to a church, and you have what often people call the man of God, which would just be the preacher, he stands there with the Word of God to preach the Word, and that's where you receive the truth. But could you imagine being in the presence of God? And it's not captured in this part of the text, but earlier in the book of Exodus, we would find that God commanded Moses to come up to the top of the mountain. And Moses waited patiently for nearly seven days before God came to him and began to speak His words to him. And while he waited, he did have Joshua with him, and they were, they were in the presence of God, a pretty powerful event with this great smoky cloud that covered the top of the mountain, thunderings, cracking, and you could just sense the power of the Almighty there. And as they approached the top, they waited seven days before God finally took 40 days and 40 nights to reveal to Moses His wonderful word. Here, God gives Moses tables of stone. We often refer to those as the Ten Commandments. He gives Moses a law, he gives Moses commandments. And here again, Moses spent such a lengthy time with God as God instructed Moses what he must go forth and teach God's people. God has always, always been concerned about his word. In the Bible, in Jeremiah twenty-three twenty-nine, we read this, "'Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, "'and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces.'" There's great power in the Word of God. The Word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and bone and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's the Word of God that humbles one's pride and then allows God to, to change them on the inside that He might eventually lift them up that they can do His will. God is concerned about His Word. And I find it just so so interesting in this chapter Moses is at the top of the mountain, not praising, not worshiping in the sense of what we would think today through music and emotion, but simply patiently waiting that God would give him the Word, the Word. Moses in this chapter is really at the peak of, spirit, of a spiritual experience in human form. He's on this mountain receiving the Word of God and This tremendous event impacted Moses so much that he spends the next 40 years of his life fulfilling the will of God. 40 years of his life. I haven't even been saved 40 years. I'm still wet behind the ears because I'm only 41 right now. I am 41, right, honey? 40. That's right. I always get it off by a year. Often I'll just say I'm 40. I'm 40, but I'm 41. All right. Uh, But I'm still wet behind the ears. But Moses spends 40 years of his life faithfully serving God, not because of some emotional experience, but because he had the words of God. He knew the truth. However, at the base of the mountain, the children of Israel, they had other concerns, as we read in those first six passages. They were impatient. They were stiff-necked, as God called them. They were prideful. They were emotional. They were sensual. They demanded that Aaron would make them gods to worship because Moses was taking far too long up on the mountaintop. And they knew what God expected from them based on Exodus chapter 20. Can you believe that? Twelve chapters prior, God's voice roars from the mountaintop declaring the Ten Commandments And the people knew exactly what God expected from their lives. He wanted them to be sinless. He wanted them to go forth in holiness. And he wanted them to live according to his ways, not their own. Here we can see a great contrast between those in the valley and those on the mountaintop. Those in spiritual decline and even those enjoying a great revival. Those who oppose God and those who... Are for God. This morning, as we're sitting here on the brink of revival, because we have a revival meeting happening in just a week's time, I, I believe this morning I, I'm, I'm trying to, I want to try to give us a charge from the message that we would return back to that mountaintop and make the climb back to revival once again in our lives. And I believe we can learn a lot from these passages this morning. We're going to use Haggai chapter 1, verses 7, 8, and possibly 9. We'll see if we go into that one in order to get the outline. Now, in Haggai, the prophet Haggai, we we, we understand some words that he was given here, but here's some context. The book of Haggai was written after the Jewish captivity. This is many years after Exodus 32. This is when the Jews had returned back to their land after they had been guilty of sinning against God and turning away from God. God sends them out of their land for 70 years. Then God allows them to return again. When they come back, the land is desolate. There's nothing there. It's nothing like it once was. It had been demolished and destroyed by the surrounding nations, and this was all a a form of God's judgment on these people for their sin. But then as they came back, they began building their own lives back, but they failed to restore their place of worship up on that mountaintop. In Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount was. And they were guilty of putting God aside, failing to realize their purpose for existence. And in Haggai chapter 1, again, we're going to just be flipping back and forth between, so I hope you'll hold your place. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 7, we find these words from Haggai. He says of the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. I believe consider your ways is the first step when it comes to revival in anyone's life. As we go back to Exodus 32, we have Moses on the mountaintop with God and the Word of God. We have the children of Israel at the base of the mountain, in the valley, turned away from God, fulfilling their own sinful lust and pleasures. Haggai says for people to get back to God, first, you must consider your ways. The Israelites, we find three things really that show up in, in our text. For them, one, they needed to consider the ways of their selves, themselves. They had gotten away from God. The Israelites had turned their backs towards Him. They were impatient for God's will. Well, you know, when we become impatient for God's will, we're going to make our own path. We're going to make our own way. Whether or not it aligns with the will of God or the Word of God is irrelevant to most Because what will happen is they'll make their own way. Because as human beings, I believe we are wired to, to move on to something. And we are wired to worship something as well. You can worship the one true living God, or you can worship other things in this world. In the case of Israel, here they just experienced these great events with God, delivered from slavery out of Egypt, brought to a place where God was now going to give them instruction of truth, where they can truly know the one and only true creator of all things. But he says, you need to wait there, and I'm going to bring Moses up, and I'll give him the truth. As the days went by, they become impatient. They're waiting, they're waiting. Come on, where's this Moses at? He's left us. He's not coming back. And yet they knew they were to wait. They were to wait. And yet in the passages, if you'll look back at chapter 32 with me, we read what happens. Look. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. In verse 1, we find that they had grown impatient with God. They had stepped away from God. They made their own way. And when we step away from the ways of God, we end up in the ways of idolatry, believe it or not. You know, idolatry is not something where it's only a a, a little figure that someone carves, a statue, and they begin to bow down and worship this little bear or lion or moon symbol or whatever it is that you have or that you've seen. Idolatry is worshiping anything above the one true God. In Exodus chapter 20, as I've already explained, God had already shown himself to these people, even prior to 32. And at the top of Mount Sinai, there's this great thunderous event, this cloud that covers. God speaks the Ten Commandments from the cloud as the people waited at the bottom, watching and hearing the roaring sound of God's voice. And do you know the first commandment that God gave them 12 chapters prior to the event taking place here? He says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is the problem with humanity today, is that often we have other gods that take the place of our one true creator. There are not many ways to get to God. There are not many paths. God does not have many names in the world. Everything outside of the one true God is an idol. And behind that idol, there is always some demon that is energizing those people and encouraging them to worship that false god. And in Exodus chapter 20, God was very clear, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And yet we find when, when Haggai mentions later, many years later to the children of Israel, he says, consider your ways. You could imagine that same truth from God showing up in the lives of the children of Israel. Here at, in chapter 32, while they waited at the base of the mountain, consider your ways. The ways of self. When we get away from God's will, we find our own will, and that leads to idolatry. And therefore, we ought to consider the ways of idolatry. These children of Israel, if you look back at the text with me, look in verse 2, look at at the extent of the idolatry. Verse 2, And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. He received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he made it a molten calf. Here are the ways of idolatry. We find they they got out of the way of God and therefore they made their own gods. Anytime we get away from God's truth, we'll make our own God. Just because you call him Jesus or just because someone else calls him Jesus, it does not mean it is the God of the Bible. There are many cults around the world that blaspheme Jesus every time they say His name is their God because their belief system, their truth that they hold fast to is not in line with what God has clearly said from His Word. For instance, there are some cults that believe that Jesus is not eternal, that He is the firstborn of God. And therefore, in the very beginning of time, this uh, this deity who is the supreme deity formed Jesus, and then Jesus went forth and formed all things. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the only deity, uh, meaning in the sense of, He's equal to God the Father, God the Son, but it's not multiple gods. Here's another one for you. There are cults that also claim to worship Jesus that believe that God is three individual gods. That's called polytheism. That's multiple gods. And the Bible clearly says there is only one God, though He is three persons. That's the Trinity. There's other cults that believe that Jesus is the brother Of Satan. Well, that's not what the scriptures teach either. Satan is nothing more than a created angel that was fallen because of his own rebellion against God. And Jesus is greater than Satan because Jesus is the supreme God. See, it's easy to believe these things. It's easy to form ideas outside of truth when we get away from the ways of God. Then what happens is we end up in this danger zone where we start to worship an idol. And we've erected this thing in our lives. And to get back to revival, we must consider our ways. Does my life align with the truth of God's Word? Am I living according to what God has said in His Word? That should be the only thing that matters. Thus saith the Lord should be all that matters. In the case of Israel, they made their gods from their earrings. Now this is is, uh, rather significant. Earlier in Exodus chapter 21, I believe, verses 5 and 6, we find that the earring was a symbol of slavery. Sometime prior to chapter 32, Israel was kept as slaves in Egypt. And they had been there for over 400 years. As their taskmasters cracked the whips, and forced them to make the brick and the mortar that built many of the structures in Egypt at that time. And the symbol of their slavery were those piercings hanging from their ears. After they left Egypt, they all had gold, and most of the time piercings were of gold of some kind. And I find it interesting that here's what Aaron says. Aaron says, as they come to Aaron and they say, make us gods that we might worship them. He says, well, give me your earrings. What does the earring represent? What does it symbolize? It symbolizes the former life. Prior to them being delivered from slavery as they passed through the Red Sea, following God's direction and power, prior to that they were in bondage and slavery, and that earring was a symbol of that former life. And do you see what they did with their idol? (laughs) When they got out of the will of God, and they got out of the way of God, they got away from the Word of God, they took their former life and they used it to create their idol. And so often we find people doing the same today with their Christianity. You have a man who maybe was in some form of of music. Maybe he was a rap artist prior to being saved. Then he gets saved. Well, in his mind, he sees his, his, his artistry as a platform. So therefore, he takes his former life, his music from before, his rap, which is rooted in rebellion, if you trace back the history of it, And he says, I'm going to change the lyrics, keep the same sound, keep the same energy, change the lyrics, and I'm now going to use that to try to glorify God. That's no different than them pulling the earrings off their ears and forming a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping worshiping it and saying, this is Jehovah, the one true God. And that's exactly what Aaron says. Aaron says, hey, tomorrow we're going to have a feast. And you know who it's going to be unto? The Lord. And you know what the name Lord is in Hebrew? Jehovah. Jehovah was not a word that you throw around flippantly back in those days. In the most ancient manuscripts, you'll find the the name Jehovah is not even spelled out because they were fearful. The, The scribes were fearful of blaspheming that one true name of God, which is Jehovah. That's His personal name. And therefore, they would leave out letters so that today we have nothing but a couple consonants and we have to assume the pronunciation of such a name. Jehovah was the one true God, and they just said the golden calf that we just formed is the one true God. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Haggai says of the Lord, consider your ways. The nation of Israel needed to do the same because people are often trying to go back to their old life in an effort to worship God, and yet God says in His Word, Go on unto perfection. Who's the standard of such things? Who's the standard of perfection? God is the standard of perfection. How do I know God outside of God's Word? I know there's ideas that float around. I know you've seen things on the internet. You've heard people speak of different truths and experiences, and therefore many people try to use their experiences to negate the Word of God. But God knows that we are creatures who are easily deceived. And in the same way that a Christian can have an experience at their concert of an excitement where they feel closer to the Lord... An atheist can have the same experience at a secular concert and feel that they are more in in tune with their physical body. God knows we can be deceived easy. Therefore, we ought to consider our ways. I myself would love to see a true revival take place in Southside Baptist Church. That all the pride would be laid aside, all the doubt would be laid aside, all the unbelief would be laid aside, but that somehow... God's power would fall on the people that are connected to this ministry, and this ministry would explode in a way that no one's seen in, very, in many, many years in this area. And I don't mean as the result of, of praise and worship bands and music, but I mean as the result of the true power from heaven simply because of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But I don't believe it will ever happen until we consider our ways. Consider your ways the ways of idolatry, as it mentioned here, as the children of Israel pull the earrings off their ears, form their golden calf, worshiping the the idols of their past, not the God of the future, the God of the present, I should say. And Aaron here, if you will, look with me at verse 5. Aaron sees the calf after he pulls it out of the fire, this molten golden idol, He then builds an altar before it and Aaron makes a proclamation and says, Tomorrow is a feast to Jehovah, the Lord. We find the ways of idolatry come from the ways of self. When we get out of God's will, away from God's way, away from God's word, we end up going down the paths of idolatry. You can't help it. It is ingrained in you. You say, I don't, it won't be me. I promise you it's already you if you're the one saying that. It's ingrained inside of us that we are prone to wander away from God. We're prone to go the way of sin, not the way of the Savior, not the way of God. The ways of idolatry. We must consider our ways And be sure that our worship is not directed towards the wrong source. The ways of idolatry ultimately lead to the ways of sin. Selfishness leads to idolatry, which leads to sin. If there is sin in your life, revival is not possible. Revival is simply us becoming what God has already declared that we might be. If you're here this morning and you're lost, you're only lost because you doubt God. It's not because God hasn't given you enough information or enough truth. The Bible has been around for thousands of years. It has been completed since the first century A.D. Prior to that, your Old Testament was around for nearly 1,600 years. It is an amazing book. There's no other book like it. Written in three languages across three continents over, as I said, fourteen to 1,600-year period by over 40 different authors, yet it has one central theme the Redeemer, the Man, God-Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. God hasn't left us without a witness. The only reason you're not saved this morning is because you lack faith. I mentioned this morning in Sunday school class. I had a man who was I was having a conversation with uh, on uh, Facebook here this past week, and he was asking all these questions for all these facts, and I gave him all the answers he looked for. They're right there in the Bible. Or they're somewhere in history. They're there. The answers are there. And eventually I said, no facts in all the world will ever save you because it's impossible to please God apart from faith. He went silent. He gave up. Faith is how you're saved. Faith is how you enjoy the presence of God in your life. Faith is how you'll experience the power of God. And faith is what Israel lacked while they waited at the base of the mountain But faith is what Moses had when he went to the top of the mountain. Seven days by faith he waited in that cloud, expecting God to speak to him simply because God had said, come up to the mountain. Forty days he waited as God expounded the law and the commandments and and the other writings of Scripture for the sake of us today. Do you know what Moses got on the mountain is what we're learning from today? Hearts are often hard due to maybe bitterness or unbelief or doubt. And you never enter into the rest that God has for you because you lack faith in God. Not facts. Not answers. They're all right there. They wait. They await the the, the child who's willing to go by way of faith and seek them out. I've been there. I know. I've experienced it myself. Selfishness leads to idolatry, which leads to sin. Sin leads to blindness, which keeps us away from revival. The children of Israel are in Exodus. They're impatient with God in His ways. They made their own way. This led to their sin. And Haggai, the children of Israel, were selfish and content with not having God in their lives. Do you know what they were doing down at the base of the mountain? There in the book of Haggai? They were building their own homes. They were establishing their own lives. They were living the way that they wanted to live. They were comfortable without God being really present the way that God demanded that he be present. That you come to this place to worship. You you, you come before me in this manner. They said, no, that's fine, God. We'll we'll just leave you alone. We're not going to the top of the mountain, but we're going to get our houses in order. Selfishness. Selfishness. Consider your ways. Because selfishness leads to idolatry. And that house will not get anybody to heaven. That car will not get anybody to heaven. That career path, those those investments, that pleasure of the world, it doesn't bring anyone into heaven. Consider your ways. Revival is quenched, is hindered, because we continue to live selfishly in this world. Worshiping our idols that we formed with our own hands, living in sin, not considering our ways. Consider your ways. The people offered four things that showed their commitment to to this form of false worship. If you'll look with me at the text in verse 6 of Exodus 32, it says they rose up early in the morning and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. In verse 6, we find they offered some things towards this idol. First off, they rose up early in the morning. You know, they were eager to worship. A rock, because that's all it was. And often we're eager to worship the rocks of our lives. We'll get up on Monday at 6 a.m. to go to work, get to work, get the money, pay for the house, pay for the car. Sunday rolls around. 11 o'clock is kind of hard. We worship rocks. What's your rock in your life? What's your stone? What's your idol? What's that thing that you're so eager to get up early for in the morning that takes place of God? Theirs was a golden calf. Theirs was just a molten image of of, of something that they remembered from Egypt. There was a God in Egypt who was the bull. I believe his name was Abbas. It's believed that's where the golden calf would have came from, the influence of their former life. They rose up early, but notice what they did when they rose up early. First off, they, they, they make these burnt offerings. It says they offered burnt offerings, verse 6. This symbolized their total commitment and surrender to their idol. They gave it all up to the idol. They made a sacrifice, and, and that's what a burnt offering represented. How committed are you to the Lord compared to other things in your life? Remember, we're considering our ways. We're considering our ways. How committed am I to something other than the Lord in my life? That's my idol. Consider your ways. How how committed are you to the Lord compared to other things in your life? That represents the burnt offering. The peace offering was the next one they gave up, peace offerings. This is giving thanks for deliverance. They were thanking a piece of stone for delivering them from the claws of Egypt. Here's my second question. How often do we put our trust in other things in life compared to the Lord? I've got to pay my bills, therefore I've got to work like a dog, and I can't ever make it to where I need to be for the Lord. Well, who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? The Lord could take it all away in a second. Be careful. We ought to have some fear for God again in in this world we live in. I know that's that's not the... Uh that's not always the the most popular message fear god but we all do. I remember a man when I was younger and uh, when I say younger I wasn't a young man I was in my 30s at that time so I guess it wasn't even that young a few years ago. How about that? A few years ago I was on a bus ministry and we were knocking doors and visiting some people and I, and I, we happened to go and visit a man whose son had just gotten saved at the church. His son was riding the bus and we wanted to go there to encourage the family to get involved in the church because there's no better no better uh, addition to a, to a good solid home than for the whole family to come to church together. Greatest thing that will ever happen in your home. Come consistently, come regularly, get involved in the work of the ministry. God will bless your home for it. We go to this man, we say, hey, did you know your son got saved last Sunday? He said, yeah, I heard about that. That was, that was great. Man, that's so good. And you know, he's been growing. He's re- bringing his Bible. He's taking notes. He's learning. Man, it's so exciting for him. He's like, yeah, that's great for him. I'm, I'm glad for that. You know, he needs the Lord. I was like, well, sir, we want to invite you to church this coming Sunday. We'd love for you to come because I, I just believe you sitting next to your son would encourage him to keep growing spiritually. For him to see his dad right there beside him, that's going to be a great blessing to him. He's going to have a leader, an example in his life. Would you be willing to do that? Well, you know, I'm, uh, you know, You guys can take care of that need, but myself, I work quite a bit, and I need to keep some bread on the table, and I want my children to have everything that they can possibly have. I'm going to keep on working all these hours. And I think he said he worked like 60 or 70 hours a week. I said, sir, you know God will give you all the things you need. And the greatest thing you could ever leave your child is a godly example in their life. I think the guy got a little upset at me because I was poking, you know, prodding a little too much. And he says, well, you guys, got, y'all just continue to do that for him. Keep picking him up, and uh, I'm just going to have to work. I won't be able to come. I said, okay, all right. I left. A couple weeks later, while the man's at work, working all those hours, putting the bread on the table, his back goes out on him. He's out for six months. Don't mess around with God. And... This is something that often is overlooked in the world because it's all, it's all love. It's all roses. It's all, uh, you know, it's all good with God, and God is gracious. Yes, we're living right now. God's merciful. Could you imagine if all of us could project the, the images that have rolled through our minds in our lifetime or project up on the wall all the things that we've ever done in our lives, even the things that were done in the deepest, darkest places of the world? Could you imagine the list of things we'd see on the walls in this church as those things were projected? And yet God in His mercy and His love and His grace continuously forgives us and continues to try to help us in our lives that we might draw closer to Him. He's a good God, but He's a God that we ought to fear. And in the case of Israel, they failed to do that. They they offered peace offerings to a stone. They put more faith in this statue saying this is what delivered us from Egypt when God in heaven says, no, it was me. I'm your creator. I'm your God. And yet in his mercy, he continues to work with those people. We find next that they sat down to eat and to drink. This reminds us that they had settled down in their decision. How comfortable are you with the idolatry in your life? Consider your ways. How comfortable am I with the idolatry in my life? I have to consider my ways on a regular basis. Do we settle down in it? They sat down in it to worship this idol, to sacrifice to this idol, to be given to this perverted way of worshiping. And the word drink reminds us that while they were there, they enjoyed it so much that they became drunken. And then they rose up to play. How light of a matter is all this in our lives. When it comes to rose up to play, some believers uh, look at the word play as a sexual act of sin. Um, I couldn't find the use of the word in this way. Uh, Maybe it's assumed because they're later referred to as as being naked, Uh, but you know, alcohol does do strange things to people. Here's what I personally believe the word is referring to, and I think it makes a little bit more sense. The word means, the the word play means to laugh or to mock at. For instance, in the Hebrew, it is the root word of the name Isaac. Isaac's name means he laughs because Isaac was born of Abraham and Sarah when they were close to 100 years old. And so they name him Isaac. He laughs. Well, the root word of Isaac is this word play to laugh, to mock at. I personally believe that. It seems so appropriate because their sins were so light to them. One says, yeah, but they didn't know better. They didn't have the written law. They just sat at the base of Mount Sinai, hearing God say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt bow down to no other gods. And yet, what are they doing? Breaking the first two commandments, blatantly in the face of God, as Moses waits for the word at the top of the mountain. They were laughing. They were playing. They made a mockery of their own idolatry and their own sin in their life, not realizing, not realizing how great of a tragedy that is for people who are that close to the Almighty, Heavenly Creator. They laughed. They played. They did not care. They had no concern. Consider your ways. What is keeping you from revival? Consider your ways. The next thing we find in the book of Haggai, I hope you still have that place there, is the next step. First, you must consider your ways, but then verse 8 goes on to say, go up to the mountain. Go up to the mountain. He says, first off, consider your ways. Had Israel have examined themselves, they said, no guys, this is wrong what we're doing. They would have turned their attention to the mountain and looked to the heavenlies Look to the, to the God who was there on top, giving them instruction that they might draw closer to Him. They failed to consider their ways. But once you consider your ways, go up to the mountain. Go up to the mountain. God has the answers to our hindrances. Is it pride? Is it fear? Is it doubt? Is it lust? Is it greed? What is it? God has the answer. Go up to the mountain is how we do this. How do we do such things? How do we go up to the mountain? By the word of God. Moses was on the mountain with God only to receive the word of God and nothing else. He was not there to have a good time. He was not there to shout and holler and celebrate. He was not up on the mountaintop to sing and to praise, but only there to get the word of God. We cannot worship God without first knowing the word of God. Get up to the mountain. There we find God knows all. Look back with me at the text at verse 7. The Lord, This is Exodus 32, verse 7. The Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou bringest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. There upon the mountain, God knows all. God knows where your life is right now. God knows what things are in your life. There's no confusion with God. There's no darkness with God. There's no, there's no absence of mind or lack of ability to think. No, God perfectly knows where you are right now. Get back to the mountain and He'll help you concerning revival. God knows all. Look, it keeps on going. For thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. God knows all. They had corrupted themselves. They had turned aside. They had made the molten calf. They had worshipped the molten calf. They had sacrificed to it. They had declared it to be their deliverer. And false worship comes when we leave the ways of God and the word of God. And that's what happened to them. As we go back up to the mountain, we find God knows all. God will expose the areas of our lives that need to be changed. And the reason why God will do that is God hates sin. God hates sin. Hates it. God calls the children of Israel stiff-necked. He goes on in the in the in the in the next passages to actually threaten to completely destroy them. Read along with me if you will. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot. Against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. God's saying, Moses, you got Joshua with you. The rest of them are at the base worshiping this idol. Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them because I hate sin so much. And Moses, I'm just going to build the nation through you. You're the only one on the mountaintop right now. Therefore, you're the only one in my will, and the rest of them are out of my will. God's anger was hot against sin. He hates sin. To get back to the mountaintop, I need to hate what God hates and I need to love what God loves. And often we don't do that anymore. We find some gray area in between, but God says, I hate this, but I love this. He hates unholiness, but he loves holiness. He hates what's unrighteous, but he loves what is righteous. I ought to love what God loves and hate what God hates. The instruction from God is on the mountaintop and that is God's word. God's not down in the valley with those people, giving them more instruction. He already told them not to worship false gods. He had already told them not to bow down to the idols. All they needed to have was faith in the fact that God was there and God was working with them and God was going to keep His promise and they lacked the faith. They turned their backs on God. And the instruction God was giving, it was on the mountaintop. He was giving it to Moses. You know, in some ways, we ought to take time to return back to the cross of Calvary if you want to know how much God hates sin. There, the innocent Son of God was nailed to a criminal's cross. And every sin that we have ever committed in our lives and the lives of all those in the world was every swing of that hammer that laid those nails into the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every every pain, every every bit of suffering, every bit of agony, every cry, every groan from the Son of God as He hung on that cross was the result of every single sin, whether it be a small white lie or it be a greater sin of murder, every single sin was put on the Son of God. God hates sin, but He loved the sinner so much that He was willing to give His Son because of our sin. We ought to return to the cross and see Jesus there as the Holy One of God who took the punishment of our sin. Haggai goes on, if you'll flip back one more time here. There's another part to this revival. We're making our way up the mountain. We're trying to get back to this area of revival. First, you must consider your ways. Second, you must return to the mountain. Third, he says, verse 8, Bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Haggai tells us the final steps concerning one's purpose, one's one's meaning in life. He says, bring the wood and build the house. Moses was on the mountaintop with God to receive the word of God. But for what reason? Was this just so that God could say, I gave my word to Moses? No, it was more than that. Moses was receiving the Word because as God said, you're going to teach it to my people. It was for the sake of the people. God's Word is for the sake of me and you today. God's Word is for the sake of the world today. God's Word is meant to be a help to us, not a hindrance, not a hurt, but a help. Moses was there for the sake of the people, and yet there God threatens to destroy the people. But Moses intercedes on their behalf, slowing the wrath of God. Look back with me at Exodus 32, and I'll read these passages to you. Verse 11, Moses besought the Lord as God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth, turn from the... Fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed and they shall inherit it forever. And because of the intercession of Moses, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Moses interceded on their behalf. Moses stood there on the mountain, interceding on their behalf. God threatened to destroy them, but Moses steps in. God has prepared in the same way. God not only prepared a time of judgment for them that He slowed, but God has prepared a day of judgment for the world. And a countless number of souls will unimaginably feel the wrath of the Almighty sometime in the future because it is appointed unto God Uh, Unto man, once to die, and after this, the judgment. See, these lives have sinned against God. And in Exodus 32, verse 33, the Lord says to Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Let me ask you a clear question this morning. Have you sinned before? Who would say that with the uplifting of your hand? You'd say, I have sinned before. Hands have gone up. That means according to verse 33, what does the Lord say about us? He says, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. That is the book of life. That means death. That means hell. That means a separation from God forever. It's no light matter. It's not a time to play. It's not a time of mockery. It is a serious time because ho- souls hang on the balance, right on the edge of eternity to be forever separated from all their loved ones, from all of God's presence, to be forever in a place of torment and misery and suffering. It's a horrible judgment. Moses stands at the top of the mountain interceding on behalf of the people at the valley. What does Haggai mean when he says, bring the wood and build the house? The wood represents the souls of men and women. In the book of Mark chapter 8, A man whose eyes were cleared up by Jesus, he says, he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. To enjoy revival, we must get back to having a passion for lost souls again. Because God has a passion for souls. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as Moses was on the mountaintop interceding for the people, God's people ought to get back to the mountaintop so that we might intercede on behalf of those who are on their way to hell to enjoy a revival. Not only do we consider our ways, not only do we return to the mountain, but we once again have a passion for the wood that goes up there, for the souls that will be brought back to God, for those who will be redeemed so that God's house will be built up glorious and wonderful in every way. The wood represents the souls of men and women. We must get a passion for lost souls again. Haggai says, Bring wood and build the house for the sake of the people. As I already mentioned, building the house, this refers to building the house of God. How do we build the house of God? Is his house not in order? Are his things not structured properly? It refers to adding more to his precious kingdom, your loved ones seeing their souls added to the kingdom. Your children, seeing their souls added to the kingdom. Your co-workers whom God has providentially brought you into their, into their lives to see their souls added to the kingdom. Your neighbors who have lived across your, from, from you for years now to bring their souls into the kingdom. Those who we come across in a grocery store, or at a gas station, or at some other retail store or somewhere else in the world, those souls that they might be added to the kingdom and the house of God would be built up. First Timothy 3.15, the house of God, which is the church of the living God. The church is the body of Christ made up of the many members who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus and Him alone. The sad truth is so many are trying to chop away at these trees, these souls of men and women with no power. You've never brought anyone into God's family. Your axe is dull. Your chainsaw needs gas. You are slaving away without any results. And here's how you get results again. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Go back to the mountain and begin to bring the wood that builds God's house again. This morning, as we think about this, this topic on revival, and here in just a few days, we'll be having a great revival, I hope. Brother Bill will be here. He's an exceptional preacher, far better than me. And I believe you'll enjoy the messages that he has. I'm praying God will touch him in such a way to give him something fresh and new that'll be just right on point for this church. But revival starts now. There was a missionary some time ago that had... had enjoyed many revivals in his life. He'd seen many souls be saved. And someone once come to him and said, where does revival start? And he just, with a straight face, he said, go home, get a piece of chalk, draw a circle on the floor, stand inside of that circle. And then you cry out to God and say, God, revive everything inside of this circle. He said, that's where revival starts. It starts with the individual." That's where it'll start with us. Consider your ways. Get back to the mountain. Bring wood to build the house of God once again. Amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed, please. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning, and I thank you for this message. Lord, now as we conclude the message, would you please help hearts to make proper decisions? Lord, would you help lives that need to be changed this morning to come by way of faith? Lord, would you continue to help us and work with us now? May the Holy Spirit have liberty.